Hello, my name is Deborah Sidaway and thank you for joining me once again as we continue the story of divorce, a series exploring the stories of the bigamists, the bastards, the feminists and the fornicators who helped shape the law of divorce in England as it exists today. In the last episode, we started talking about marriage and what makes a valid marriage as we looked at how the marital duplicity of Scottish bigamist Captain John Campbell of Carrick led to the Clandestine Marriages Act being enacted in England. But this was an act that had no application in Scotland, and unfortunately for one woman, Scotland did not enact a similar law. In today's episode, I will be telling the tale of that woman. It is another scandalous case of betrayal, abandonment and bigamy. The story of the indomitable Miss Jackie. We have already seen, through the sorry example of Lady Jean Campbell, that the consequences of a bigamous marriage could have devastating consequences. And to reflect this, The criminal courts had the power to punish bigamists, as can be seen time and again in the archived records of the Old Bailey. But in a society where there was no divorce, bigamy was sometimes the only option for someone who sought to leave a wife for another woman or a husband for another man. Take, for example, a case dated 21 July 1736, when Robert Hussey, was sentenced to be branded on the hand for his bigamous marriage to Sarah Hussey, having simply left his first wife because they did not agree. In many cases like this, judges would impose such a sentence in the full knowledge that the branding would be done with a cold iron. It was, in reality, nothing more than a slap on the wrist for husbands and wives trapped in marriages that had gone wrong, Often where the first husband or wife had long since vanished without anyone knowing whether they were still alive or dead. But these were cases usually concerning what they called the lower or middling sorts, where there was no property or assets to be fought over. The Clandestine Marriages Act, however, was enacted largely to protect people of wealth and power, and the penalties for breach of it were bordering on the draconian, reflecting the seriousness with which the government viewed the issue. Anyone found to be in breach of the provisions of the Act faced a sentence of transportation to the colonies for 14 years. This brought an abrupt end to the business of fleet parsons, especially after one man, John Grierson, was made an example of on 4 December 1755, being sentenced at the Old Bailey to 14 years transportation for unlawfully, knowingly, willfully and feloniously solemnising matrimony without first publishing of bans or without any licence first had or obtained of a person having authority to grant the same in contempt of our Lord the King, and against the statute in that case made and provided. In addition, anyone found guilty of falsifying an entry in the register was liable to be executed without benefit of clergy. With the Clandestine Marriages Act, the law, for the most part, considered the matter of what made a valid legal marriage to be settled. There was some tinkering with the legislation between 1822 and 1833 with the passing of three further acts, two of which were almost immediately repealed. But the effective result from this amendment to the law was to declare that a marriage would be automatically void only if the parties had knowingly and willfully contravened the law. 
1836, the government, under the administration of Lord Melbourne, a man who we will return to later in this series when we look at the story of Caroline Norton, passed two acts that would further cement the formal requirements of a marriage with the Marriage Act and the Births, Deaths and Marriages Registration Act. So in effect, marriage had evolved from being an informal agreement between two people who both consented to take each other as husband and wife in the present tense, to a legal union regulated by the state, while at the same time it was shifting from being a sacrament of the church to something more akin to a civil contract. And the case that confirmed this as the guiding principle as to what marriage was, the case we are going to explore today, is the case of Dalrymple and Dalrymple, where the courts were asked to untangle the infamous scandal involving the complicated marital shenanigans of John William Henry Dalrymple, a man who would go on to become the seventh Earl of Stair after the death of his cousin. Let's travel back to 1804 a year of political turmoil with the nation at war against the Napoleonic forces of France, the year in which William Pitt the Younger would again become Prime Minister. George III was on the throne, once more on the brink of madness. In this year, 19-year-old Mr John Dalrymple, the son of a noble Scotch family, was a cornet in His Majesty's Dragoon Guards and was quartered with his regiment in Edinburgh. Shortly after his arrival, he found love or more accurately, he found Miss Joanna Gordon, the daughter of Charles Gordon of Braid and of Clooney, a gentleman in a respectable condition of life. As the court would state, Joanna was young enough to excite a passion in his breast. As to what attraction she saw in him, as the Scottish artist Charles Kirkpatrick Sharp wrote to Lady Charlotte Campbell in 1811, as to Miss Gordon, She's a Venus, well suited to such a Vulcan, whom nothing but money and a title could have rendered tolerable, even to a kitchen wench. The two began courting and committed their love to each other in writing, with mutual promises of marriage exchanged, and upon the faith of these promises, they conducted themselves as husband and wife. Now, much like Carrick before him, Dalrymple, too, confirmed his commitment to Joanna in writing, signing a declaration which acknowledged Joanna Gordon to be his lawful wife. But as I mentioned, John Dalrymple was in Edinburgh. So this marriage took place in Scotland and the Clandestine Marriages Act, which as we have seen came into force following the two marriages of Carrick of Campbell, had no application. The scene was set for yet another betrayal and bigamous marriage. And just like Carrick before him, Dalrymple was concerned that his family, and particularly his father, General William Dalrymple, would disapprove of his marriage to a degree that might seriously affect his fortunes, and he persuaded Joanna to keep the marriage a secret. As a result of this need to keep their marriage a secret, Dalrymple and Joanna did not cohabit as man and wife, and upon hearing of the troubling rumours relating to his son, Dalrymple's father made haste to Edinburgh and removed him to England. The thwarted lovers, Joanna and John, resorted to letter-writing to declare their continued ardour for each other while Dalrymple was in England. However, when he sailed for Malta in 1805, his correspondence to Joanna ceased and he recruited a family friend and his confidential agent, 
and Mr. Hawkins to intercept any further letters from Joanna and to tell her that he would read no more of them. It seemed that his passion for his wife had not survived the months of separation from her. Joanna kept her silence as to her marriage until the spring of 1807, when her father-in-law, General Dalrymple, died. At that time, Joanna asserted her marriage rights and wrote to Mr. Hawkins accordingly. He, in turn, appraised Dalrymple of his dealings with the abandoned Joanna. As the court would recount, Mr. Hawkins communicated what had passed by letter between himself and Miss Gordon and dismissed him with the most anxious advice to adhere to the connection he had formed and by no means to attempt to involve any other female in the misery that must attend any new matrimonial connection. Despite this advice from a trusted family friend, with only a very few days afterwards, Dalrymple married a Miss Laura Manners or to call her by the name to which she would later become entitled, Lady Laura Manners Tolmash, who had the benefit of a much higher social standing than Joanna, being the daughter of John Manners, an MP who was a direct descendant of the second Duke of Rutland and Lady Louisa Tolmash, later to become the seventh Countess of Dysart. The marriage ceremony, which took place by special license at St. George's, Hanover Square, was described by the court as being conducted in the most formal and regular manner. Unlike Joanna's marriage to Dalrymple, which had been far more informal. Now, Joanna was a woman known to have something of a temper and was said to be full of flame and fire and she was certainly not going to let any woman take the place she considered to be her right that of wife to John Dalrymple. Upon hearing the news of her husband's purported marriage to Laura, Joanna took her claim to the courts, seeking restitution of her conjugal rights. This was more than just an attempt to require her husband to resume intimate relations with her, although Dalrymple did claim in court that he had not had intercourse with Joanna following their exchange of promises of marriage to each other. No doubt he hoped that if he failed to persuade the court that he had not entered into a legal marriage with Joanna, he could have the marriage annulled for lack of consummation. As you might have guessed from the fact that Dalrymple contested Joanna's claims in court, he did not want to take Joanna back as his wife. Given that Dalrymple was making it clear that he no longer wanted Joanna, why was she so determined to have the court recognise her as Dalrymple's wife and have her conjugal rights restored? Whatever she felt about Dalrymple, whether she wanted him back because she was desperately in love with him, or she was just salving her wounded pride that he had discarded her in favour of another woman, or even if making him face up to her in court was a means of avenging herself on him for her abandonment and humiliation. The fact is, that if she was his lawful wife, a court order for the restoration of her conjugal rights would require Dalrymple to live with her, but more importantly from her perspective, to provide for her financially. Joanna brought her claim in the consistory courts in England, the first tier of the ecclesiastical courts, as her husband was, at that time, resident in England. Now Joanna won her case at the first level, but... Dalrymple, still unwilling to take Joanna back, appealed against this decision. At the same time, 
Laura brought her own legal action against Joanna in the consistory court in Edinburgh to have it found and declared that Miss Manners and Mr Dalrymple were married persons and that Joanna Gordon should be put to perpetual silence. This strategy didn't work. The court in Edinburgh refused to hear the matter while it was determined by the courts in London. The feisty Joanna was not a woman who was going to be silenced. In London, the court stated that while Joanna's claim had to be adjudicated by an English court, they were required to determine whether her marriage to Dalrymple was valid pursuant to the principles of Scottish law, as that was where the marriage had taken place. Unfortunately for Laura, as we have already seen, Scotland had no equivalent to the Clandestine Marriages Act. It was this that gave the court in England the opportunity to discuss the character of marriage as being contractual in nature. The case has since been remembered as one that established the nature of marriage in English law. It was still cited some two centuries later, albeit briefly when I was at law school. Yet there were real-life consequences following on from the decision in Dalrymple and Dalrymple. As the court found in favour of Joanna, despite the distress that this would cause the distraught Laura. Indeed, the court exonerated both women of any blame in the whole marital debacle. Speaking of Joanna, the judge, Sir William Scott, later to become Lord Stowell, said, She did all she could under the obligations of secrecy which Dalrymple had imposed upon her by entering her private protest against his forming any new connection. She appears to me to have satisfied the whole demands of that duty which circumstances imposed upon her, and I must say that if an innocent lady has been betrayed into a marriage which conveys to her neither the character nor rights of a wife, I cannot, upon any evidence which has been produced, think that the conduct of Miss Gordon is chargeable, either legally or morally, with having contributed to so disastrous an event. The court went on to pronounce formal sentence, but before doing so added, It is impossible to conceal from my own observation the distress which that sentence may eventually inflict upon one or perhaps more individuals, but the court must discharge its public duty, however painful to the feelings of others, and possibly to its own. And I think I discharge that duty in pronouncing that Miss Gordon is the legal wife of John William Henry Dalrymple Esquire, and that he, in obedience to the law, is bound to receive her home in that character, and to treat her with conjugal affection, and to certify to this court that he has done so by the first session of next term. The effect of the decision was that Laura was left without a husband, and in the invidious position of being neither wife nor widow, nor divorced wife, and having unintentionally committed the scandal of having lived with a man outside of wedlock. As one ill-natured contemporary wrote, did you laugh when you saw in the newspapers Miss Laura Manor's degradation from the altar of Hymen? Unfortunate Laura. The scandal ruined Laura, and she became a social recluse, retiring with her dogs, her parrot, and her loyal companion, to whom she left a bequest in her will when she died in 1834. Dalrymple was forced by the court to take Joanna as his wife, but the marriage was not a happy one. 
with Dalrymple spending years trying to extricate from himself from his marriage, including trying to divorce her for adultery, but was unable to provide evidence to support the allegations of adultery he made against her. It was also rumoured that he attempted to have the spirited Joanna incarcerated in a lunatic asylum. It seemed that he was finally successful in ridding himself of his wife in 1820, but in circumstances which are far from clear. The Scots peerage declared that the marriage had been annulled by lords of the Scottish session, but as yet I have been unable to locate any surviving record to verify this. However, given the misery he inflicted on poor Lady Laura, justice of a sort did catch up with Dalrymple, as he spent the last 11 years of his life alone, unable to take a new wife, before dying speechless and almost unconscious in a hotel in the Rue de Clichy in Paris in 1840. He died childless. The male issue of the first and notorious Earl of Stair expiring with him, leaving a distant cousin to inherit the title. He is remembered most for this infamous legal precedent discussing marriage. Joanna, or the indomitable Miss Jackie, as her family called her, went gaily on, as her family said, and continued to refer to herself as the Dowager Countess of Stair until her death in 1847, the last of the players in this farcical courtroom drama to die. The decision in Dalrymple and Dalrymple confirmed what had been understood since the Reformation, that marriage was no longer considered to be a sacrament, but a civil contract entered into between the husband and the wife by an expression of their consent to the union in the present tense. And as the character of a marriage was therefore materially altered, this, in theory, should have made it possible for a marriage to be brought to an end. For if marriage was no longer deemed to be a sacrament, there was nothing on that account to render it indissoluble. In addition, once the state had made laws that governed when a marriage could be made and what was required to make a marriage legal, and also created a system for the compulsory registration of marriages, as it had with the Clandestine Marriages Act, surely the state, by implication, assumed the responsibility for controlling when those marriages could be brought to an end. If only it were that simple. It took some time to grapple with the issue of when a divorce could be granted and which governmental authority, whether the courts or parliament, had the ability to pronounce for a divorce. But all of this only really became an issue when someone with sufficient wealth, power and influence decided that they wanted a divorce. And this would be the catalyst for a seismic shift in English history, the trigger for the Reformation, and it would, for the first time, suggest that it was possible for the sacred bonds of matrimony between a husband and a wife to be broken. It began in the time when England was still a Catholic nation, and marriage was still considered to be an indissoluble sacrament. A bewitching young lady caught the eye of an already married king. He fell in love, and consumed with his majestic passion for her, was determined to have her no matter what even if he had to change the religious landscape of the nation, she would be his. Her name was Anne Boleyn, and with her came one of the greatest misconceptions about divorce that continues until this very day. Her story will be revealed next time as the story of divorce continues.
Once again, my name is Deborah Sidaway, and I invite you to follow the podcast series on Twitter at, at Story of Divorce, where you can drop any comments or questions, and also find some interesting pictures relating to some of the stories we have explored. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join me again soon.